Chapter 10 of Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A Fine Voice Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Chapter 10 The Great Break Vienna, a specialist in Wimpole Street, the Great Decision, Norwood, the Refugees, reported death of Holmes. We set forth upon a bitter winter day at the close of 1890, with every chance of being snowed up on our long trek. We got through all right, however, and found ourselves in Vienna, arriving on a deadly cold night with deep snow underfoot and a cutting blizzard in the air. As we looked from the station, the electric lights threw out the shining silver drift of snowflakes against the absolute darkness of the sky. It was a gloomy, ominous reception, but half an hour afterwards, when we were in the warm, cosy, crowded, tobacco-laden restaurant attached to our hotel, we took a more cheerful view of our surroundings. We found a modest pension, which was within our means, and we put in a very pleasant four months during which I attended eye lectures at the Cranken House, but could certainly have learned far more in London, for even if one has a fair knowledge of conversational German, it is very different from following accurately a rapid lecture filled with technical terms. No doubt, has studied in Vienna sounds well in a specialist's record, but it is usually taken for granted that he has exhausted his own country before going abroad, which was by no means the case with me. Therefore, so far as I work goes, my winter was wasted, nor can I trace any particular spiritual or intellectual advance. On the other hand, I saw a little of gay Viennese society. I received kind and welcome hospitality from Brinsley Richards, the Times correspondent, and his wife, and I had some excellent skating. I also wrote one short book, The Doings of Raffles Hoare, not a very notable achievement, by which I was able to pay my current expenses without encroaching on the very few hundred pounds which were absolutely all that I had in the world. This money was invested on the advice of a friend, and as it was almost all lost, like so much more than I have earned, it is just as well that I was never driven back upon it. With the spring my work at Vienna had finished. If it can be said to have ever begun, and we returned via Paris, putting in a few days there with Landolt, who was the most famous French oculist of his time. It was great to find ourselves back in London once more, with the feeling that we were now on the real field of battle, where we must conquer or perish, for our boats were burned behind us. It is easy now to look back and think that the issue was clear, but it was by no means so at the time, for I had earned little, though my reputation was growing. It was only my own inward conviction of the permanent merits of the White Company, still appearing month by month in Cornhill, which sustained my confidence. I had come through so much in the early days at Southsea that nothing could alarm me personally, but I had a wife and child now, and the stern simplicity of life which was possible and even pleasant in early days was now no longer to be thought of. We took rooms in Montague Place and I went forth to search for some place where I could put up my plate as an oculist. I was aware that many of the big men do not find time to work out refractions, which in some cases of astigmatism take a long time to adjust when done by retinoscopy. 
I was capable in this work and liked it, so I hoped that some of it might drift my way. But to get it, it was clearly unnecessary that I should live among the big men, so that the patient could be easily referred to me. I searched the doctor's quarters and at last found suitable accommodation at 2 Devonshire Place, which is at the top of Wimpole Street and close to the classical Harley Street. There, for £120 a year, I got the use of a front room, with part use of a waiting room. I was soon to find that they were both waiting rooms, and now I know that it was better so. Every morning I walked from the lodgings at Montague Place, reached my consulting room at ten, and sat there until three or four, with never a ring to disturb my serenity. Could better conditions for reflection and work be found? It was ideal, and so long as I was thoroughly unsuccessful in my professional venture, there was every chance of improvement in my literary prospects. Therefore, when I returned to the lodgings at tea-time, I bore my little sheaves with me, the first fruits of a considerable harvest. A number of monthly magazines were coming out at that time, notable among which was The Strand, then as now under the editorship of Greenhoff Smith. Considering these various journals with their disconnected stories, it had struck me that a single character running through a series, if it only engaged the attention of the reader, would bind that reader to that particular magazine. On the other hand, it had long seemed to me that the ordinary serial might be an impediment rather than a help to a magazine, since, sooner or later, one missed one number, and afterwards it had lost all interest. Clearly the ideal compromise was a character which carried through, and yet instalments which were each complete in themselves, so that the purchaser was always sure that he could relish the whole contents of the magazine. I believe that I was the first to realise this, and the Strand magazine the first to put it into practice. Looking round for my central character, I felt that Sherlock Holmes, whom I had already handled in two little books, would easily lend himself to a succession of short stories. These I began in the long hours of waiting in my consulting room. Greenhoff Smith liked them from the first and encouraged me to go ahead with them. My literary affairs had been taken up by that king of agents, A.P. Watt, who relieved me of all the hateful bargaining and handled things so well that any immediate anxiety for money soon disappeared. It was as well, for not one single patient had ever crossed the threshold of my room. I was now once more at a crossroads of my life, and Providence, which I recognised at every step, made me realise it in a very energetic and unpleasant way. I was starting off from my usual trudge one morning from our lodgings, when icy shivers passed over me, and I only got back in time to avoid a total collapse. It was a virulent attack of influenza, at a time when influenza was in its deadly prime. Only three years before, my dear sister, Annette, after spending her whole life on the family needs, had died of it, at Lisbon, at the very moment when my success would have enabled me to recall her from her long servitude. Now it was my turn, and I very nearly followed her. I can remember no pain or extreme discomfort, and no psychic experiences, but for a week I was in great danger, and then found myself as weak as a child and as emotional, but with a mind as clear as crystal. It was then as I surveyed my own life that I saw how foolish I was to waste my literary earnings in keeping up an oculist's room in Wimpole Street, and I determined with a wild rush of joy to cut the painter and to trust for ever to my power of writing.'
I remember in my delight taking the handkerchief which lay upon the coverlet in my enfeebled hand, and tossing it up to the ceiling in my exultation. I should at last be my own master. No longer would I have to conform to professional dress, or try to please anyone else. I would be free to live how I liked and where I liked. It was one of the great moments of exultation of my life. The date was in August 1891. Presently I was about, hobbling on a stick, and reflecting that if I lived to be eighty, I knew already exactly how it would feel. I haunted house agents, got lists of suburban villas, and spent some weeks as my strength returned in searching for a new home. Finally I found a suitable house, modest but comfortable, isolated and yet one of a row. It was 12 Tennyson Road, South Norwood. There we settled down, and there I made my first effort to live entirely by my pen. It soon became evident that I had been playing the game well within my powers, and that I should have no difficulty in providing a sufficient income. It seemed as if I had settled into a life which might be continuous, and I little foresaw that an unexpected blow was about to fall upon us, and that we were not at the end, but really at the beginning of our wanderings. I could not know this, however, and I settled down with a stout heart to do some literary work worthy of the name. The difficulty of the home's work was that every story really needed as clear-cut and original a plot as a longish book would do. One cannot without effort spin plots at such a rate. They are apt to become thin or to break. I was determined now that I had no longer the excuse of absolute pecuniary pressure. Never again to write anything which was not as good as I could possibly make it, and therefore I would not write a home story without a worthy plot, and without a problem which interested my own mind, for that is the first requisite before you can interest anyone else. If I have been able to sustain this chapter for a long time, and if the public find, as they will find, that the last story is as good as the first, it is entirely due to the fact that I never, or hardly ever, forced a story. Some have thought there was a falling off in the stories, and the criticism was neatly expressed by a Cornish boatman, who said to me, I think, sir, when Holmes fell over that cliff, he may not have killed himself, but all the same, he was never quite the same man afterwards. I think, however, that if the reader began the series backwards, so that he brought a fresh mind to the last stories, he would agree with me that, though the general average may not be as conspicuously high, still the last one is as good as the first. Weary, however, of inventing plots, and I set myself now to do some work which would certainly be less remunerative, but would be more ambitious from a literary point of view. I had long been attracted by the epoch of Louis the Fourteenth and by those Huguenots who were the French equivalents of our Puritans. I had a good knowledge of the memoirs of that date, and many notes already prepared, so that it did not take me long to write the refugees. It has stood the acid test of time very well, so I may say that it was a success. Soon after its appearance it was translated into French, and my mother, herself a great French scholar, had the joy when she visited Fontainebleau to hear the official guide tell the drove of tourists that if they really wanted to know about the court of the great monarch, they would find the clearest and most accurate account in an Englishman's book, The Refugees. I expect the guide would have been considerably astonished had he then and there been kissed by an elderly English lady, 
but it was an experience which he must have narrowly missed. I used in this book also a great deal which was drawn from Parkman, that great but neglected historian, who was, in my opinion, the greatest serious writer that America has produced. There was an amusing episode connected with the refugees. When it was read aloud in some strict Irish convent, the innocent Reverend Mother, having mistaken my name and imagined that I was a canon, and therefore, of course, a holy man. I am told that the reading was a tremendous success and that the good sisters rejoiced that the mistake was not found out until the story was completed. My first name has several times led to mistakes, as when, at a big dinner at Chicago, I was asked to say grace as being the only ecclesiastic present. I remember that at the same dinner one of the speakers remarked that it was a most sinister fact that though I was a doctor, no living patient of mine had ever yet been seen. During this Norwood interval I was certainly working hard, for besides the refugees I wrote The Great Shadow, a booklet which I should put near the front of my work for merit, and two other little books on a very inferior plane, The Parasite and Beyond the City. The latter was of a domestic type unusual for me. It was pirated in New York just before the new Copyright Act came into force, and the rascal publisher, thinking that a portrait, any sort of portrait of the author, would look well upon the cover, and being quite ignorant of my identity, put a very pretty and overdressed young woman as my presentment. I still preserve a copy of this most flattering representation. All these books had some decent success, though none of it was remarkable. It was still the Sherlock Holmes stories for which the public clamoured, and these from time to time I endeavoured to supply. At last, after I had done two series of them, I saw that I was in danger of having my hand forced, and of being entirely identified with what I regarded as the lower stratum of literary achievement. Therefore, as a sign of my resolution, I determined to end the life of my hero. The idea was in my mind when I went with my wife for a short holiday in Switzerland, in the course of which we saw there the wonderful falls of Reichenbach, a terrible place, and one that I thought would make a worthy tomb for poor Sherlock, even if I buried my banking account along with him. So there I laid him, fully determined that he should stay there, as indeed for some years he did. I was amazed at the concern expressed by the public. They say that a man is never properly appreciated until he is dead, and the general protest against my summary execution of Holmes taught me how many and how numerous were his friends. "'You brute!' was the beginning of the letter of remonstrance which one lady sent me, and I expect she spoke for others beside herself. I heard of many who wept. I fear I was utterly callous myself, and only glad to have a chance of opening out into new fields of imagination, for the temptation of high prices made it difficult to get one's thoughts away from Holmes.' That Sherlock Holmes was anything but mythical to many is shown by the fact that I have had many letters addressed to him with requests that I forward them. Watson has also had a number of letters in which he has been asked for the address or for the autograph of his more brilliant confrere. A press-cutting agency wrote to Watson asking whether Holmes would not wish to subscribe. When Holmes retired, several elderly ladies were ready to keep house for him, and one sought to ingratiate herself by assuring me that she knew all about beekeeping and could segregate the Queen. 
I had considerable offers also for Holmes, if he would examine and solve various family mysteries. Once the offer, from Poland, was that I should myself go, and my reward was practically left to my own judgment. I had judgment enough, however, to avoid it altogether. I have often been asked whether I had myself the qualities which I depicted, or whether I was merely the Watson that I look. Of course I am well aware that it is one thing to grapple with a practical problem, and quite another thing when you are allowed to solve it under your own conditions. I have no delusions about that. At the same time, a man cannot spin a character out of his own inner consciousness and make it really lifelike, unless he has some possibilities of that character within him, which is a dangerous admission for one who has drawn so many villains as I. In my poem, The Inner Room, describing our multiplex personality, I say, There are others who are sitting, grim as doom, in the dim, ill-boding shadow of my room. Darkling figures, stern or quaint, now a savage, now a saint, showing fitfully and faint in the gloom. Among those figures there may perhaps be an astute detective also, but I find that in real life, in order to find him, I have to inhibit all the others, and get into a mood when there is no one in the room but he. Then I get results, and have several times solved problems by Holmes's methods after the police have been baffled. Yet I must admit that in ordinary life I am by no means observant, and that I have to throw myself into an artificial frame of mind before I can weigh evidence and anticipate the sequence of events. End of chapter 10